Welcome back to Brojo Online. Going in a slightly different direction today. Today, uh, the other coach from Brojo, Mike Wells, and I got together for a chat. We just talk about all sorts of different things, from how we organize our mornings and manage our time, all the way through to how attachment styles affect our careers and our relationships. So this is just a general chat. We're not trying to achieve anything in particular here. Just listen in as you hear the latest and the work that Mike and I are doing on. So just listen in if you want to hear the latest and the work that Mike and I are doing on ourselves. This is Brojo Online. Masculinity, confidence, and integrity. Trying to do some more uh, structured early morning routines and stuff. And uh, it's been nice. It's a shift for me. I tend to work late. My uh, whatever my phenotype or whatever your uh, daytime nighttime cycle. I tend to work until I'm exhausted. Which when I'm working on a complex creative programming project, that's like 3 a.m. or something quite often. And that means I'm not getting up at 6 a.m. Right. But uh, I don't have that happening right now. So I decided to try the other end of the spectrum and see how it felt. It's been really good. 6 a.m. wake-ups, you know, straight to the cafe. It opens at 6.30. A bit of email, some writing, gym. And then my day is like, feels supercharged. Mm -hmm. So it's been a bit crazy lately. Energy levels been through the roof. It's fun to experiment with those things once in a while and figure out what, what you can improve. Definitely. Yeah, I've heard a lot of people switch to the early morning. Some of them even like before five. And uh, it's just like their whole, all the important shit for the day is done by like nine. You know, they're just, yeah. uh, I get it. I get up about seven. Um, it's, uh, I feel like that's early for me. It seems to work for me. But yeah, it's funny. Even if I get up, say, an hour later or for some reason I'm delayed by an hour, the rest of the day feels sluggish, like I'm trailing behind. Um, it's amazing what those minutes in the morning do. I don't know. They're just more valuable minutes. I think, you know, maybe it's just cause you're on full steam and then it wears off throughout the day or something. I don't know. I think that's exactly right. The, one of the things that's really struck me about, uh, in coaching as a recurring theme lately is that for a lot of people, the stress that they feel in their day and their life isn't from, uh, things they're not doing. It's not from, I can't. I don't have time for the gym. It's not wrong. I don't, you know, uh, not achieving all the things I want in my life. Usually it's things in their day that are draining them. Bad practices, right? Um, waiting until the last minute to get that important task done, which means that it's draining you the whole time emotionally up until you finally get around to doing it. And people don't see that, but that heat is there. And I find um, in the morning, you know, yeah, the engine is cold, but there is zero stress. Everything's at 200% efficiency. Crack stuff out, just boom, 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 done. And then the rest of the day just feels cruisy by comparison. It's really a beautiful thing. And I actually have time to have a nice relaxing evening, and I can take a break in the middle of the day and go for a walk in the domain or whatever I want to do. And it's not pushing other things back and interrupting my schedule. There's a, there's a guy named, uh, I've been following more bodybuilders lately out of my interest in you know, developing my own body, kind of learning their routines and lifestyles. There's a guy named Fraser Bailey who, uh, 
who's, who's actually in our group. And he tours the U.S. as a professional bodybuilder. And I'm thinking he's he's living in a camper van, traveling around the U.S., swimming in rivers, loving it. He's got two young kids and his wife. And he's still buff as heck. I'm like, there's no gym anywhere. How is he doing this in the middle of COVID? You know, he's been doing it for like a year now. I'm pretty sure. And then I was reading through some of his posts because he's quite inspirational as well. He's quite into the psychology side of his lifestyle. And yeah, gets up at 4 a.m. It's exactly how he does it. He gets all the hard shit out of the way. Then cruisy, play with the kids, have breakfast, hang out with the wife, go for a swim, you know, stays ready to go. So I'm going to incorporate as much of that as I can, see what happens. Yeah. What's your routine been like? Yeah, it's been really good lately. I um, I had a big breakthrough this year. As a result of coaching, I, uh, receiving coaching, I, I read a book called Essentialism, pretty popular book. Um, and it just kind of woke me up to the idea that there's no such thing as multiple priorities. There's a priority, and then there's the rest. And there's this kind of really ruthless approach to it. Uh, so I started employing that, which was essentially I got into this really linear hierarchy of tasks where there's number one, then there's number two, and two never comes before one, and three never comes before two. Um, and it kind of peters out near the end. It becomes more and more optional as the list expands out. It becomes more in like the groupings of tasks get bigger and you can kind of pick and choose because it doesn't really matter at that point. And I've found that because of that approach, like there's a couple of practical changes like i do one video a week instead of two and things like that just little things where i reduce the quantity to increase the quality and kind of focused and that and yeah since i've been doing that i just blast out all the important shit it's most of the time it's done it's always done before lunch at the but sometimes it's done by like 9 30. it depends when i have coaching calls because they take like an hour or two and from there on out, it becomes, it's just been so cruisy. I've been learning to cook. So I'm like doing like probably averaging about two hours of cooking every couple of days. You know, I'm going for like walks. So with the cooking, I go for a walk to the supermarket, just buy the, the food for that cook, you know? So it's quite a big walk to half an hour each way sort of thing. Um, I'm practicing check. I'm doing all the stuff that I kept like procrastinating on or being haphazard with. I'm like nailing it all now. So that's been really interesting. And it hasn't been about any external change. Like I haven't had like some advantage that's made this easier. It's just that essentialism mindset where I've just really kind of got ruthless about what's important and what's not and behaved accordingly. Yeah, that, that prioritization is, is absolutely essential. And I find that I enjoy every part of my day more. As a result of it, I actually enjoy the gym more because I'm there because that's my number one essential in the day, right? That's my non-negotiable. Hmm. That one's going to happen, right? doesn't matter what I do for that hour at the gym, but I'm going to be at the gym doing something. And then the rest of the day, because all those big tasks are kicked off, the invoices have gone out, you know, I've answered critical emails, I've had a coaching call. The rest of the day, it's like, uh, it's like a playground. Real creativity gets to come out and shine. I get to go out and have a coffee with a friend, and I actually get to be present in that coffee with that friend, not thinking about, oh, God, I got so much to do still, you know? 
What time is it? Yeah, it's it's quite life changing. It's, it's such a subtle shift from a practical standpoint, but the, uh, the psychological, the emotional implications are massive. Yeah, it's it's really a philosophical change more than anything. I think you see it in the micro behaviors. Like I'm not flitting between tasks. Um, but one of the things I came to realize is, like I saw it in my journaling, I start. I use the word behind when I'm stressed. I'm getting behind. I'm feeling behind. And I came to realize that that's a feeling. That's not actually a measurement of how well I'm doing. I can feel behind and be on top of things. And I cannot feel behind and be falling apart. So it was something else that I just called behind. And what I started to realize is that feeling is actually a, a distance away from essentialism. I've lost track of what's important. Yes. That's what that feeling means. That's that's a great way to put it. I describe that feeling for me as the the big uncomfortable tasks that aren't yet done are growing. They're accumulating, right? I'm not ticking them off and getting them processed. So it's like this boulder at the top of the cliff that just keeps increasing in size and looming over you until you're just waiting for it to come crashing down. Have you heard of time boxing? As a Good of it. Good of it. It's, it's, it's very simple. It's something, I mean, you can see it all the way back to you know, Ben Franklin's journal, really. Um, it's basically chunking your day into groups of tasks, very much like, like you're doing. Yeah. You've taken an individual task and then you said, well, all the tasks related to that, all the accounting tasks, let's say, I'm going to spend 20 minutes on that every day, just so that it's clean and in, in process. And, and that's the way I started approaching my day. Um, it used to be I was trying to be more rigid, like get up, go to the gym, write. Right? Writing was the task. Um, sorry, go to the cafe, write, then go to the gym, work out, lift weights, then go back to writing to finish out and publish an article, then into coaching calls, right? But now it's more, it's a little bit more flexible. So I'll go to the cafe, but it's going to be contacting people, catching up with friends, writing, doing emails, you know, online stuff, communications, planning, calendar stuff, right? And I'll do that for an hour. And then I go to the gym and then most days it's weights, but there's a lot of learning involved in that too. So I'm sitting down and making plans and researching new techniques and revising my my uh, mesocycle pattern that I'm currently on and planning the next week and I'm looking at my nutrition. And so there's a lot of stuff in that box and then i go home and then my morning box is usually a combination of tech work and, and more emails maybe a bit of programming but that's that's just a two-hour slice and the nice thing is you don't lose track the thing that i've always had a problem with is without a box um the room would just overflow with stuff right i start programming and then eight hours later i'd be like okay i'm tired now gotten some programming done, nothing else is, is done at all, right? All those other things that I meant to do today didn't get touched. But now I'm too tired to do them. I'll have to save them for tomorrow. And then the same thing happens again. And that pattern, it's an anti-pattern, isn't it? It's quite stress-inducing over time. But it's how I usually approached the giant to-do list problem, right? Was try to just grind it rather than organizing it in a meaningful way. Yeah, I definitely, 
a definitely box like it's actually really rigid in a sense the first box is preparation for the day and includes my morning routine looking at my calendar getting zoom calls ready that sort of thing uh the second box is called client because when i was doing essentialism i realized the most important thing to my business are my clients as obvious as that is it's something actually a lot of people don't realize as entrepreneurs it's bizarre they do everything else first so i've got this box of clients and that's a mixture of tasks it's responding to clients emails and clients messages it's reaching out to new people and uh making sure they're all well taken care of you know, they hear back from me within sort of 24 hours always. And then the next box is like creative slash personal. So it's where I do my checklist and it's where I write my book and make videos. Um, it's all very creative and there's different tasks throughout the week that put into that box. And uh, the next one after that is Brojo. So it's everything, basically anyone who's not a client, but doing the community, taking care of all that stuff. And then finally, there's this box just called Other. and Really, I can skip that box four days out of five in a week and no harm gets done. I, I usually have a wrap up on Friday to like scoop up the others that got missed, but I've got this kind of guilt free thing. It's about halfway through the Brojo task where at this point, like if it doesn't get done, no one dies and I can really just listen to my feelings. Like if I have an extra, I usually do two coaching calls a day, but if I have three, it's going to be time stolen from those boxes to fit in that three rather than like I used to. I'm like, I'll go to the fucking death to do it all. It's just so unproductive to do it all. Bizarrely. Yeah. 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 You end up paying for it the next day too. Something we don't really take into account. Um, yeah. I have a very similar thing. My rule is people first. I try to apply that everywhere. Partly because naturally i tend to be on the introverted end of the spectrum and solve problems that i can solve so like if i have a technical problem a piece of code or so and i'd always dive on that because that was i could feel like i'm making progress with it but that meant that people ended up not an afterthought but those communications and those connections ended up happening at the end of the day and that affected everything social life business you know friendships romance you know now I turn it around, get up in the morning cafe, Facebook, who's messaged me yesterday, you know, meet up. Now I'm on there chatting with people and, and it feels good. It feels good to start your day with social tasks, you know, and no pressure. And I've got that hour to, to play with that. That's been really good. And then I'll actually apply that in each of my boxes. So for example, uh, if one of my boxes is creativity, the first thing I'll contact do is contact co-creators to see how they're doing, make certain that they're working on their part of some new article that I'm coming out with or schedule a, a podcast that I'm doing with someone. Again, just try to put people at the front of it, you know, create a new habit out of it. It's really nice. I find it really good. Do you take a break? Like in the middle of the day, do you have a box, which is kind of like open long lunch free time, siesta? Pretty much, um, and that's kind of me and Lucy time as well. We've got a little, basically a tradition um, after lunch. We just kind of cuddle up on the couch and we'll either talk or nap or watch something together. It's uh, I used to always leave that till the evening, but it's so much better in the middle of the day. And, and it's one of the things I love about entrepreneurship is, you know, I, I, I did a little bit of research a while back on like the things people regret on their deathbed. 
going to talk about essentialism, that's a good place to start. And it was part of a kind of journey I was on. I was like, I so often see good advice, but then I have to go through and make all the same mistakes they do before I take it seriously. And I was like, is there a way to leapfrog that? Like, can I just judge what is good advice and just go straight to following it rather than having to go through the rigmarole of, you know, uh, kind of replicating the study sort of thing? And so when I looked at like all these old people all saying the same thing that they regret, you know, I'm like, I'm not going to wait till I'm them to go like, oh, yeah, they were right. I'll implement it now, just like like I'm trying to take care of my heart health now. With the, That's why one of the reasons I took up cooking as a hobby is because I wanted to make healthy food delicious, which was quite a mission for me. If I can do that, then I'll eat healthy. I'm like, most people wait till they're 50 after their first heart attack to take it seriously. Like, can't I just learn from their lesson and do it now? And it was the same with Lucy. I'm like, most people wait until they work too hard and ruin their marriage to go, I should have spent more time with my wife and kids. And I'm going to be like, no, nah, I'm going to do that before I have that realization. I'm going to do that before the pain even begins. Yeah. It, you know? It's just, it makes I, I love it. I love it. I, I think it's so much more organic. That was actually one of the things that lunch break. It's one of the things that struck me the most about uh, Ben Franklin's schedule. It takes two hour fixed lunch break and it's just free time. Let's take a nap. It's fine. Want to go hang out with his significant other? It's totally fine. You know, there's nothing in that box except kind of, you know, eat, eat something and rest. And in a, in a sense, by doing that, he ended up creating two days out of one. There's a complete reset before he starts the afternoon, comes in completely fresh again. and starts the whole process over again. And I thought that I really like that. I've been doing the same thing. I'll take a break. I'll eat away from my desk, I'll go somewhere, I'll usually catch up with a friend, go out for coffee, and then get some shopping done, you know, go for a walk, get some sun. That's such an important time. Like, we tend to neglect, we think of time that's spent for our own relaxation and enjoyment as stuff that has to go at the end of the list after all the other things are done. But the problem is, when you kill your energy source of being relaxed and mindful and present, get nothing done. And your life just sucks across the board. You know, we've both been there where it's like, why is life so shitty? You know, everything's going okay, but I hate it. Yeah. Approaches everything. Well, this actually, this ties in a couple of things I want to chat to you about. I think we originally intended to talk about attachment styles or something, but I just Mm -hmm. like letting it go where it goes. But there's a couple of things that have come up lately and putting a video or two out about it. One is uh, this concept I've started calling going south to get north. As these people living in the opposite way of the dream that they're trying to create and thinking that that will somehow work. Like people who hustle and grind to create a relaxed, free lifestyle. It's kind of like that's, that's going the opposite direction. And that's what I really got out of the essentialism book was my day now should be a micro of the macro. The dream life I have should look like the day I'm living currently to the best of my ability. There may be limits on that. I'm obviously working on areas. But if my dream life is to have lots of free time that I spend with my wife and kids and my day today is a 12-hour workday where I neglect them, I'm, I'm going in the wrong direction. That's not going in the right direction unless yesterday was a 14-hour day and I've shaved two hours off. And then tomorrow's a 10 hour day. Then I'm going in the right direction. But this also tied in not only in my, you know, this idea of like 
your day should look like your life, or otherwise you're going in the wrong direction. But I noticed something. We've been talking about attachment styles a lot. I wanted to get your opinion on this. And I'd always been kind of looking at it through the narrow scope of romantic relationships and slightly broader scope of friendships. I'm seeing it everywhere now. I'm seeing it in the way that people do everything. It's kind of the Aristotle thing. Okay, you do anything, you do everything. Careers. Avoidant people in their careers, they don't commit to things. They don't dive all in. Anxious people stick with shitty things just because they're sticking with them. They have that sunk cost FOMO thing where they just stay with it even if it's garbage. And I was like, I reckon there's, I mean, this is early days on this particular hypothesis. But I'm an avoidant style by kind of default. I had a different job every year for like 10 years. And even when I found something good, like when I was a probation officer, I quite enjoyed that. I kept looking for a promotion and stuff. I never settled. I never committed. I was never loyal to any one position. And I was like, wow, that, that looks like the way I date. That looks like the way I interact in a conversation. It's Everything looks the same. So I want to check in with you. Oh, you thought of that little theory I got going. Yeah, yeah. Uh, absolutely. Uh, and I've got something uh, something similar that's been percolating in the back of my head regarding the, the entire attachment styles problem. Is that, you, you know, the attachment styles diagram has two axes, right? And it has two categories for each axis. Either you are happy and content and secure in that situation, or you're avoided. And that happens with other people and it happens with yourself as well, right? So you're with a four quadrant three. So basically the diagram does a great job of describing healthy relationships and avoided relationships, but it doesn't describe dependent relationships. I think there's another side to the There's a third column that's missing. So you can be afraid of committing to something job or someone you can be secure in it or you can be totally dependent and needy for it that's the other side of it right so now you've got a nine part grid and it gets really really interesting when you look at this because the number of people i see that will completely panic when they get laid off as an example or their partner leaves or the relationship is a bit shaky um or anything in their world that's outside of their control isn't going the way they want, right? That reaction of being dependent on it is something that we don't really talk about. We talk about the avoidance side because we see it in, in our relationships and in our own behavior. You and I both share that. And But what's interesting is, I wish I should have drawn this out. We'll have to do this at some point and have a deep look at it. You can think of it like, think of it as a spectrum of avoidant, secure, and over-attached, over-dependent, right? Those two ends are related in the sense that in, for both of them, there is this sense that all of my security is outside of me, right? If I feel that I cannot safely protect myself, if I can't protect my own world the way that I want, I'm totally dependent on someone else, then either that avoidant behavior, that sense of I feel insecure about that, therefore I'm just I'm not going there, or the opposite, I go way over attached to it and cling on to it for dear life, that's going to be the result. 
So when we're talking about Aristotle, you know, going back to the idea, of what are the fundamental things underneath that? I think that is the fundamental thing, is that sense of either my comfort, my security in life, my emotions, my happiness are mine, or it's something outside of me that happens to me that I've got very little control over. And so I'm at the mercy of, of the winds, right? I feel like everything emerges from that core principle of who's controlling my life, me or fate, you know? We've gotten yeah. a bit maybe an abstract there, but. Well, I was, I was looking at, uh, I was relooking at Maslow's hierarchy of needs, and it's just the second level that safety. And I think there's very few people that have actually gone beyond that level in any significant way. That level was always, uh, Maslow described it as a physical thing, but I think, especially these days, it's much more of a psychological thing. And whether you're avoidant or anxious or overly attached, whatever you want to call it, it's a safety issue. A secure person, that's a very well-named uh, attachment style because it basically implies in, uh, a safety that's untouched or a safety that's been established and kind of like set and forget you can move on. You know what I find really interesting, which I think is the next level of development for the attachment theory, is that people aren't either avoidant or attachment, they're uh, avoidant or anxious. They're both. It just depends. You know, the picture I've got in my head is like a little kid playing at the ocean front and chasing the wave. And then when the wave comes, they run away from it. And then they chase it out and they run away from it. I see this all the time, like someone, they're really anxious until they get what they want and then the avoidance stuff kicks in, you know, mm. or even their over-attachment to something is a form of avoidance. You know, it's it's like two sides of the coin. It's the same thing. I think you were kind of implying that before. It's the same thing at the same time. Well, it's, it's avoidance of taking responsibility. Right. I'm handing that responsibility off to someone else. You take care of it. It's your job now. Well, I saw like a couple of examples that I've dealt with lately uh, that are classified as avoidant as guys cheating on their partners. Had a few of those in my clientele come up. And they're, you know, they're horrified with themselves. They always saw themselves as a guy who would never do that and so on, that classic story. And then they hit with the brutal truth, like a man is a man. You put him in the right perfect storm, he'll do things that any other man will do. And they're so gutted by that. And it looks like avoidant behavior. But the chase to get the girl was very anxious, very needy, uh, desperate to please, lots of people pleasing, nice guy behavior to get and keep the girl. And then when it starts getting intimate and real, suddenly there's lots of porn use and distant emotional effect and eventually things like cheating or gambling or drinking, whatever. These you can just see the guy is down at the pub every other night with his mates or however it manifests. But then these guys, and here's where it gets interesting, the girl breaks up with them for the cheating, and now the guy's like suicidally depressed about losing the girl and wants her back more than anything he's ever wanted. Away and back and away and back. And I just see this throughout their lives, this in my, my own life, this pattern of run towards, it comes at me, I run away, in all areas, even health, I've seen it. Yeah. And, and this goes back to 
that fundamental switch that we keep talking about, about what's the difference between excitement and anxiety. Virtually nothing. That is such a tiny switch. It's all about perspective. This is good for me or is it bad for me, right? Feeling the, the compulsion to run towards or run away from that is all a result of that perspective of this is good for me or not. So when someone's avoidant, it's when they get close and then suddenly start to feel unbalanced or responsible for someone or that somehow their freedom is a bit curtailed. Some little minor thing, you start to panic. This is bad for me. You become avoidant. Now, the girl leaves. Oh, my God. What happened? Chase after her. I noticed on Quora the other day, I get questions in this category quite a bit. And what's amazing to me is you'll get a question like, I cheated on my girlfriend. She left. What do I do now? How do I get her back? And down the side of the page is related questions. There were thousands. Exactly the same question. Wow. You know? Yeah. I think it's very clearly there's a fundamental pattern going on in how we're approaching life in a really, really unhelpful way. It looks, when, when someone's behaving this way, it looks bizarre, like they're two different people. And that's the thing is they kind of are. They've basically got these kind of two personas and it depends on the context to which one will come out. They almost play in this kind of yin-yang cycle going in and going. Like we talked before, you know, they talk about in the book, the, the big leap, the upper limit problem. Someone's just about to get everything they ever wanted and then they fuck it up. They've been pursuing it really hard. And then right at the last minute, the self-sabotage pops up in some bizarre form. I think that's it. That's like you yearned for it until you got it and then you panicked but smothered by it and ran away. I've even seen an unhealth, like I think this would be a great way to explain why a lot of diets don't work. Even the ones that are relatively like uh, sane, you know, not these crazy fad diets, but the ones that are just basically a structured way to eat healthy and exercise. People actually start making progress and then they just bottom out. You're like, it was starting to actually feel good. You were enjoying exercise and food finally. And then a couple of ice creams, a couple of skip days at the gym, three months later, you're bigger than you've ever been. Why? Because I think you almost got it and you panicked. And there's this kind of panic reaction to actually getting what you want. And I think it's the, the vulnerability of having something to lose. You know? I think that that's part of it. I definitely think that's an important layer, that sense of, Fear of success, really, is what we're talking about. But there's another theory I want to toss at you, get your feedback on. You know that I'm quite a fan of using the triune main model as an understanding of basic evolutionary psychology and how it works. And so you've got reptile brain, mammal brain, human brain, and they each have different purposes, all running at the same time. Reptile brain is all about survival. Mammal brain is all about connection and social connection, right? Human brain's about designing a good future. And they're always in competition with each other. So one of the things I notice is, let's take the relationship example. We desperately want a relationship. Through our teens, we're desperate to get into a relationship. Then we get into a relationship and suddenly things get comfortable, right? Get too comfortable. I think what happens is the male brain's happy and satisfied, the serotonin, the oxytocin are rocking along, we're having regular sex, the world's a good place. And then the reptile brain freaks out. It freaks out because it realizes 
this is the last girl I'm going to sleep with. You know, I have no options now. I'm not allowed to do anything. I'm not allowed to be a reptile anymore. And that part of the brain, which has a job, right, it's designed to spread your seed and, and uh, meet as many partners as possible, doesn't know how to negotiate and balance. So you end up having an argument in your head. It starts off as a feeling of pressure. Like I'm vaguely uncomfortable here and I don't know why because I have everything I ever wanted. And then so at some point you blow your top, suddenly wake up next to someone else. You're like, what happened? And your reptile brain's happy, but you feel like crap, trade someone. Fortunately, never been through this personally, but I've seen it happen so many times. And now your mammal brain's freaking out because you just damaged that connection that's so important to you, hurt someone that's very dear to you. And if they find out, they'll probably leave. And now you're without that relationship. And now the balance is the other direction. I think that continually happens. And it's it's functionally, it seems to me like there's an inability for people to process the different emotions that are happening for them and use them as a guide to establish a balance. You always end up with this yo-yo effect. You know, one gets the spotlight at a time. Probably part of developing maturity. But there's got to be a way to help people really understand at what point those those warning bells indicate that they're not taking care of themselves. Here's a let me give another example. This is one that I used to do to myself all the time. Now I've never uh, cheated on a partner in in a big way, fortunately, but um, I've definitely had that feeling of you're in the relationship and now you feel super stressed about it like your world's been somehow boxed in and cut off. What I found interesting about that, reflecting on old relationships when I was really young, is that I did everything to create that, right? I'd get into the relationship and I'd stop seeing friends, stop going to the gym, stop meeting new people, wouldn't go to any classes or anything. It's just me and my partner and that's it. And then pretty soon I feel incredibly anxious and stressed and boxed in. And couldn't explain why. It felt like, ah, oh, it's because I'm in the relationship. It had nothing to do with the relationship, right? But I didn't know how to negotiate those, those two brains. And so I ended up creating a, a situation which created huge stress and never stepped back and looked at it and said, there's a reason I feel uncomfortable here. What is it exactly? You know, what is it that I should have adjusted? Now I look back at them and it seems so obvious to me that I just needed to balance things out, make sure that I was doing healthy things for me. This is why we always talk about the importance of putting yourself first, because the moment you lose sight of that, the relationship ends up becoming very dependent on the partner, and then it's gonna crash. It's gonna go over the cliff at some point, in some way, like like the guys you've been coaching recently. Yeah, I think that you can frame it through that triune brain theory quite happily i mean essentially i'd describe a secure attachment as all three brains in agreement working together cooperative not necessarily agreeing all the time but cooperative in the way they interact and and this is something you can train yourself to do but first you have to understand your patterns because people just repeat themselves over and over again and i think like you kind of indicated before they're they're looking so short term like oh i'm stressed out right now rather than that kind of question uh, other guys interviewing the other day in podcast, he says the first question you have to ask is, "How is this all my fault?" 
and you know what he means is that kind of bigger picture cosmic perspective of i got myself right here how did i do that what was not what did happen this week but what happened this year what happened the last 10 years how did i end up here like this have i done this before i was just doing some coaching recently and the coach asked me like i was explaining some dilemma i had and he goes is this a new problem or a recurring problem i was like oh it's definitely a recurring this always happens all of them always all my problems are recurring and as soon as you see that you realize okay there's something i'm gonna have to actively manage here i want to see like i think this is one of the techniques I used to manage this, um, it happened when I went to propose to Lucy. I was very, very fucking nervous doing that. Uh, and the funny thing is, I don't know if I was more nervous about getting a yes or a no. They both freaked me out. I think I would have been more comfortable with a no, because overall I'm like, I tend towards avoidance, so a no would have been a relief almost. A yes was going into the fire and that's that's one of the things i learned is sometimes for me to do the right thing it's going to feel like walking into the fire i have to learn what those situations are like it's this feeling that i'm walking towards with like all the alarm bells are ringing is wrong but rationally there isn't anything wrong and i have to see that i have to know the difference between that and actual danger and and so when i was looking at say commitment to lucy which was how I developed another thing, was, look, proposing to marry her is not the same as obliging myself to stay with her for the rest of my life. It's not actually the same thing. A marriage can end. And if it goes bad, if it's not like this and turns into something else, I'm allowed to leave. I'm always allowed to leave. We actually had an agreement that there would be no promises in our wedding vows because I would have a panic attack, you know. I, I don't like promises. It feels like a debt that you didn't sign up for. So I was like, well, I can manage this. The way I manage my avoidance is to always come back to the presence. Like, do I still want to be with her one more day? You know, do I still like her? If the answer is yes, well, then relax for the rest of the day. You can re reassess tomorrow. Um, but that walking into the fire thing is something I've looked at a lot lately. Which is like, if I feel like I'm walking into the fire to do this thing, it might actually be a really good idea. And I need to stop and look at this purely rationally. And go, what are the facts of the case? What are the actual dangers? What are the imagined dangers? If I go through with this, what's the worst case scenario? And how would I handle that? And if that all comes up green, then it means my emotions are misfiring. It's my old trauma fucking just firing off on, on a on a dream, on something that's not real. And I don't actually have to listen to it, or I, I listen to it, but I don't have to obey it. It's not an instruction. It's more like the, just a kind of blurt from a childhood wound. And if I walk through the fire, the rest of my brain eventually gets on board. Like once I'd actually proposed to Lucy and gone through with it, afterwards, I felt nice about it. I'm like, yeah, that was a good move. Well done. I felt brave for doing it. I felt like sort of proud of myself for facing this great fear. And I, it was such a gift to give to her. And I was just like, the fuck was I worried about? But I had to go through it before I could have that realization because those probably my reptile brain more than anything just didn't like the idea of being dependent on somebody else and didn't like the insecurity of that. 
I was like, I'm not dependent on someone else. I'm just getting married. Relax. I quite, I quite like that that realization. You know, if you look at the difference between modern society, where we're at right now, and ancient tribal societies, one of the biggest differences, I love, love the book Sapiens, yeah, it's such a great mm-hmm. book, but one of the biggest differences I notice is the level of commitment that we make today to different things in our lives. You know, in tribal societies, we had a relationship and it lasted as long as it lasted. No one stressed about anything. There was no concept of marriage, there was no concept of ownership. We didn't buy a house together and get a mortgage together, you know. It didn't work, you moved on, you know. And uh, same with which tribe you're a part of. You know, I don't really like this tribe. I'm going to move to another one. I want to live out in the forest by myself, you know. I don't like being a hunter. I'm going to learn to make baskets, you know. But today, you don't have a job. You have a career. You don't have some dream that you want to do. You have a mission, purpose. You don't have a relationship. You get married. You sign a contract until death you put apart. You know, you don't live in a hut. You get a mortgage that drains you for the rest of your life. It's almost as though we've learned to overcommit and somehow created this sort of false idea that there's more happiness there, that will somehow get more stability out of that commitment. But the problem is we always end up feeling trapped. It goes very much against our sort of, I feel that all humans have this inner drive for freedom. The moment we feel trapped, I mean, it's why jails are a punishment, right? Because humans don't like to be boxed in. And yet we box ourselves in everywhere in life. And we choose it. And somehow it's become socially expected. You're not married? What's wrong with you? You know, that kind of thing. Uh, what do you mean you go from job to job to job? You know, that doesn't make any sense. You look down on people like that. But I think quite often they're the happiest people. They actually understand that. I'll commit this far and then I, I want to learn something new. Let's go over here. Uh, my mom was a good example of this. She loved learning, but she bore a tire of things easily. And so she picked a hobby, just lots of time, and she'd become a master gardener. Be like, I'm tired of gardening. And then the garden would die. Now I'm doing basket making. And then she'd go over here. She went through at least 30 hobbies, became like professional expert level in all of them. The moment she did, she's like, I got enough of that. On to the next thing. And I didn't understand it as a kid. So I'm like, you're not getting anywhere <laughs> in your life. But that wasn't the point. For her, it was the experience and the learning and having fun doing things. That's ultimately what life is about. I think we often lose sight of that. Well, I think, yeah, getting sight of that is a key factor in righting the wrongs here. Like, it goes both ways. So if you're avoidant, if you just ask yourself, am I actually enjoying this? Could I stay another day? Would I want to? That'll help you figure out whether you really want to leave or if you're just panicking. Right? Like, I, I get it sometimes with hobbies. I'm like, I don't want to do this anymore. I'm like, do I actually not like the activity anymore? Or am I just like a bit stressed? Okay, I'll do it again next week and we'll see then. Um, and it's the same, I think it works the same for anxious styles. Like the person who stays in a shitty job, they stop and just go, do I even like this job? What's if, what if the answer is no? Just at least acknowledge that the answer is no and start looking around a little bit. Because it's funny, I, the weird thing is, people's emotions, the way they feel about things, their preferences, whether or not they enjoy something, 
I believe in as a very accurate measurement tool. But it gets distorted by all this other crap and we lose sight of it. You know, like, I honestly think the whole purpose of the emotion of happiness or I'd say enjoyment is just to figure out what you should be doing. And that's different from pleasure. Pleasure like the high, the dopamine rush. Of, I mean, you can get that from all sorts of nasty activities. And usually people are just seeking it because they haven't found something that makes them happy. But happiness is the kind of thing like you get lost for hours in it, or you just like, you never question the meaning of life when you're doing it. And, and you just, if you imagine being on your deathbed or someone says you've only got 12 months to live, you're like, I want to do more of that. That's happiness. And if you just let that guide you, then basically all the other emotions are to deal with everything that gets in the way of that. You know, but these attachment styles, you know, they, they distort what makes you happy because you just get so panicky that you lose track of what you actually, whether or not you're actually enjoying something. This reminds me a lot of what uh, Viktor Frankl was saying in Man's Search for Meaning is that it's not, there's not really happiness and unhappiness. They don't really relate to, to life in a significant way. What you really want is that sense of purpose, that sense of meaning, that understanding of I'm here because this is, this is good for me. And as a result of that, I enjoy it. I intuitively know that this is good. I know where I'm going with this and I can stay around doing this forever. Right? Those highs and lows, they'll happen, but they're not the things that we're supposed to be chasing. We've definitely changed that in modern society. Right? We chase all the highs we can. and to get all the crashes that follow them. So, yeah, that's really interesting. I, I I marvel at the fact that everything I read and study about, you know, ancient tribal cultures is that their pace of life and the ease and the happiness and just the general life satisfaction they had was so far higher than ours. In fact, I, I laugh sometimes. I look at people, I look out the window here over uh, Parnell and the CBD and the motorway. I see all the people going into work for rush hour in the morning, anxious and frustrated and just trying to get to work, right? Then I think about a tribe of monkeys sitting in the trees, some bonobos chewing on some bananas. They're way happier. What went wrong? How did we create this? Bonobos would look at this and go, you guys are whacked. You know, what are you doing? You've got this massive brain and this is what you created, you know? And uh, yeah, it says a lot. Yeah, I think, uh, I mean, it's hard for anthropologists to make a call on this, but there's a general feeling in the sort of historic society that people were better off before we made big technological advances. Psychologically, emotionally, they were better off. Maybe not health-wise. When we're in the middle of the food chain, there's, there's evidence that we had a more leisurely existence and a more purposeful existence. There's, there's evidence that people weren't sitting around going, fucking, I'm so depressed. Like, didn't have time. You got eaten by a tiger if you sat around for too long. So, but, you know, that's been a big thing for me over the last couple of years. I'll admit when I first got into coaching, I had dreams of stardom to some extent, you know, uh, watched. Tony Robbins, I'm not your guru, and I thought one day, you know, sort of thing, but not to that sort of cheesy extent. But more and more lately, I'll tell you an experience I just had just the other day. Um, I guess, you know, I'm going to have a daughter soon, so I'm just like hypersensitive to parenting and stuff. We're at the pools, 
and this guy walked past and he was holding like two boxes of like chips with sauce you know the kind of things you get at the pools a little daughter next to him and she's like chattering away trying to keep up she's obviously excited about getting her portion of chips now i have no idea what he's saying but i imagine he's kind of teasing her about it so i don't know maybe these are both for me you know doing that typical dad thing and i was like who needs more than that you know who needs more than that for a good life but i could live on moments like that just being like a sarcastic dad that would be complete fulfillment i don't need to be remembered do you know what i mean um and lately, just lately, I've been more and more interested in the simple life, the insignificant but very meaningful life. You know, the one that, you know, you don't get remembered and they don't put your name in stone. But what nobody knows is you actually enjoyed it more than most people do sort of thing. So I've been trying to crack that code, moving away from like, who's the person who has the big impact and the legacy? Because I've just seen too many examples now of those people being driven by demons you know i i had a breakthrough this year where i was reading nietzsche i've never really read the source material before i've always just read people talking about existentialism or whatever i'm like well i'll read what he actually wrote you know and as i was reading it there was a little prelude that just tells you a bit about his life and he died in misery and suffering and lunacy he lost his mind and I was like, do I want to go out like that? Because I could, I could do that. I could sit at my computer till 4 a.m. busting out philosophical quandaries and getting my mind all fucked up about it and not talking to anyone and not taking care of my body. So I think going back to like attachment styles, a lot of the very successful and loudly successful people that we see the ones who meet the standard criteria of success by society standards. Some of them are driven by just pure misery. You know, I've seen that. I've seen a study lately that says the highest risk people for heart disease are the top one percent now. That being rich is no longer a leisurely existence. It's actually a dramatically hustle and grind existence. And I think that is about avoidance and anxiety. Just being driven by demons, not wanting to settle into simplicity or panicking about not having enough. I mean, what would drive a billionaire to work hard? Why? Why would you when you don't have to? I can understand doing something meaningful, but doing a 12-hour day every day and neglecting your family when you have a billion dollars? Why? Unless you're driven just by insecurity. It's not the behavior of a confident person, but of one who's just drowning in demons. You know? It's interesting you should say that. I've met, I've, I've had the good fortune to have lunch and dinner with a couple billionaires. Um, and for the most part, they didn't work hard. At that level, I think you actually do tend to pull off because you're like, well, I'll never need anything. Millionaires stress the heck out. They're way more stressed than you and I are. Way more stressed. Um, because it's sort of an intermediate stage where you could lose it all, right? Billionaires really never going to lose it all to a point where. But I've never seen a relaxed billionaire, other than other than Bill Gates. Bill was he is very very chill. He knows who he is. He knows where he's at. He knows if he loses it all tomorrow, he's the same guy, right? Most of 
the other people I've met attacked very strongly to where they're at in life and it stressed them the heck out. Uh, one of the guys I met, uh, Jackie Saffrock, he's the owner of Republic Bank and, and uh, Encyclopedia Britannica. That's how I met him. Uh, will not get in a taxi. Will not get in a car with anyone he doesn't know. Doesn't trust him. He's expecting to get kidnapped at any moment. What kind of life is that? You know, imagine that everyone's out to get you. You know? And I was just like, oh, I never, I really never want that. I never want to be like that. I'll give up all the billions to just be comfortable and happy in my own skin and not worried about someone kidnapping me. You know? Uh, it's, it's pretty amazing. But Something that you said, I think, is very, it all ties together, doesn't it? You know, the attachment model and, and the, the feeling that we continually have of stress and our response to that of, therefore, I need more. I think that drives a lot of our poor decisions. You know, if you're a billionaire and you feel stressed and that makes you work harder, you're, you're, you've lost perspective, right? I think the first thing we need to ask is, why am I stressed? Do I actually need more? Like, great, every area of life is an example. Let's say getting into a relationship. You find a happy relationship, and then you automatically assume that I need to keep progressing this to the next level, to the next level, to the next level. Started a business, needs to grow and grow and grow and grow. Um, there's no, we never have a point at which we say, I'm happy now. It's time to stop, do something different, right? We have this fixation on taking everything to this extreme. There's the, uh, the book Profit First that you recommended to me. I don't know if you read this part, but there was a very interesting point at which the author cautioned against making your business too big. Mm -hmm. His point was, he didn't say it in this way. My, my interpretation is that you know, yes, you can get more and more and more reward, but with that comes more risk. So your stability becomes this crazy stock market jagged thing, and you could lose it all tomorrow. You get one bill that you can't cover, and you're done. And I've seen that happen. My first business that actually happened. We're getting huge paychecks, but we're also getting huge, huge bills, and they cancel each other out pretty fast. Doesn't matter how big those paychecks are, you know. Um, I think that there's really a lot to be learned there about life in general, is that there is a point at which you need to say, I'm happy, this is what I want to continue at, and just keep developing and maintaining that while you build other areas of your life. The whole culture around fixation, and I've never got enough, is very destabilizing. Yeah, you know, I, um, my first experience of that directly was when I worked in corrections. I was a probation officer and I was good at it too. Like after a few years, I could work with like some of the most ruthless beasts and turn some of them around. But the urge just keep going up and the next level up went into management. You're no longer working face to face. And I made that move almost driven by something. But some voice in me was like, no, too far. You're getting away from it now. Now, I was able to make that work for me eventually, but it was never the same after that. I lost my love of corrections from that day slightly. Uh, good news is, is eventually I lost it completely and moved to coaching. But I'm seeing the same thing in coaching 
which is I'm getting to the point now where I could start thinking about a business model that hands this off to other people, you know, that idea of working on the business rather than in the business. I was like, but why would I stop coaching? What would be the point of that? Just so the business gets bigger? Why does it need to be bigger? What is bigger? What's what's better about bigger than right here? Because right here is quite sustainable. And but the next stage would mean I'm coaching less. Or or I'm I'm handing that coaching on to someone else. I thought, well that's that's not my vision of the future. So why would I change that? And I was like, it's good to catch myself and go, I'm not gonna repeat that mistake. The work I need to be doing growth wise is not on changing my external situation, but on learning to better appreciate it. Being able to like enjoy being the same more sort of thing. So just slight tweaks to the lifestyle, but ultimately the work is internal, not external. And actually external is just fine. Like my needs, you know, the thing that really struck me about Viktor Frankl's book, Man's Search for Meaning, it's a bit actually that nobody talks about, which is, holy fuck, the Jews survived a lot of shit. They were eating nothing, going out in the snow and bare feet and working 12-hour days with ruthless hard labor, with the threat of death hanging over them, sleeping on wooden benches with not enough room to turn over. And they fucking made it. I was like, fuck the human body doesn't need much. Like, obviously that wasn't an ideal fucking way of living, but you can get by on fuck all. Like, in terms of basic needs, like, if if a human body can endure that, it is pretty tough. And yet we're panicking when, you know, the bills are a bit late or we have to downsize with the rent or whatever. Like, dude, you're crushing it. Like, you're fine. You're absolutely, if there's food in your fridge, even if there isn't, but there will be tomorrow, you're all right. You know? Yeah. It's crazy how much we think we need, but we don't need fuck all. I love that. I love that. That's, you know, the, the monkey tribe, you know, example again. You know, that monkey can look up in the tree and count the bananas, theoretically, right? If it wanted to. Um, but it doesn't stress out about the fact that, you know, there's only 12 bananas left. I'm going to starve next week. Nah, just, you know, it knows that uh, it's always going to be able to find food. It does not stress about that. I think it's both a, a blessing and a curse, right? In the case of normal mammals, most mammals, except for maybe dogs and dolphins that have a more developed forebrain, they don't think about the future. They don't predict squat, right? Very present. Somehow, we've become so dominant in our forebrain thinking, we totally ignore the present. And as a result, we're chasing, we're always chasing something. We're always anxious about something. It's always not enough. We never get to step back and enjoy, you know, teasing our daughter about the, the chips that we're going to eat them all. And we miss out. We miss out on life. You know, that's what life is. But uh, uh, it's insane. I'm, I'm really happy that I'm seeing this now in my own life and learning how to just enjoy what I've got and not stress so much about the future. Unless, you know, even with COVID, I was like, yeah, I feel pretty chill about all this. Like, I worry about the world and the health of family and friends, but no one's, no one I know is dying right now. No one I know is uh, starving right now. You know, there's no wars, there's no imminent threat. You know, just take care of yourself and keep going and enjoy, enjoy what you've got. And I think that's how a lot of people that, that, you know, 
being forced to stop and reflect on life and sit at home and kind of what I do now was really good for a lot of people. Yeah, Stoicism helped me a lot with this as well. There's a couple of key things from it. I don't even know exactly where I got these, but one was the idea I've survived everything so far. So you get these people have this problem with trusting themselves. That's what worrying is about. Is you're basically saying, I don't trust myself to handle the future, so I need to overthink it. I need to plan it. I can't just wing it because I can't be trusted. Only people who don't trust themselves worry. That's why psychopaths never worry. They're completely faithful to themselves. Almost envy them. But what a lot of people don't do is they don't look back over everything accurately. They look back and say, I fucked that up and I fucked that up and that was a mess, blah, blah, blah. But then they miss the next bit and I got through it. Like, the more fuck-ups you got through, the tougher you must be. You know, the more of a disaster your past was, if you were abused or you just had a really string of bad luck or you had neglectful parents or whatever, you're still fucking standing. You got through all of that relatively well. Like, you might not be psychologically the fittest person in the world, but you're standing, maybe you're functional, you can hold a conversation, you can secure an income, you're fucking doing pretty well despite all of that stuff, and you don't trust yourself to handle the next thing? It doesn't even make sense. It's like an insult to the truth. Of course you're going to handle the next thing. And I think that's the important thing for especially anxious people who don't want to change anything they've got going. They're worried that like, oh, I need this job. I need this relationship. It's like, nah, if it doesn't work out, you'll fucking handle it. Like you handled everything else that didn't work out. In fact, you'll handle it a lot better if you remember that you can handle it. Stop panicking over something you don't need to panic about. And and, and with, with Stoicism, again, for my avoidance, the biggest one was, it's a Marcus Aurelius quote, I think. This too shall pass. Whenever I get that panicky thing, like, oh my God, this is whatever it is. I need to run. I'll be like, do I need to run or do I just need to wait? Because waiting solves fuck everything. Nothing can be bothered lasting very long. You know, you're in an argument like, oh my God, it's never going to end. It is. One of you's going to fall asleep at least. Like this just can't keep going. So you don't need to run. You just need to wait. And it will be over and you'll realize maybe I didn't need to run after all. You know, maybe I could just see it through. Those two, it's kind of like uh, trusting your ability to both create and destroy. If it doesn't work, you'll destroy it. And if you're missing something, you'll go create it. Because that's what you've always been able to do. You know, maybe not as well as you'd like. But well enough to get you here, which is... Better than everybody else who died, basically. All 20 billion people or whatever. Yeah. Yeah, and that, and that brings up another good point, which is this whole fixation on trying to get somewhere uh, means we end up over-investing in things that aren't working. The perfect example is probably careers. A number of people I know that felt forced to pick a career when they're in high school and because they did their degree in it, felt felt like they absolutely had to stick with that career for the next 20 years, right? And are miserable about it. You know, that, that continuing compounding investment became a trap. And then I know a lot of other people had said, not nah, screw that, I, I hate engineering, I need to go do something else. And then they would go searching for 
for a new opportunity. It's almost as though the moment we make a decision, we feel we fear failure so much that we feel that any admission that that wasn't the right choice, acting up and making it taking a different path, is an abject failure. And so we'll, we'd rather go south forever than say, wait, the sun's on the wrong side. <laughs> I need to turn around, you know. And we'll perpetuate. We make it worse and worse and worse. And of course, we're gonna we're not gonna solve the problem. We're just gonna get more and more and more stressed about it. But we'll do it quite continuously. It's uh, it's probably part of that investment fallacy we've talked about in the past. So yeah, I keep investing. Therefore, I have to keep investing, or I'll lose all the time and energy and money I've already put into it. Not a recipe for happiness. You know, actually, a great example, modern day example of this right now is Gary Vaynerchuk. He was such a huge proponent of hustle and grind methodology. And right now we witness him in a transition where he's having a change of heart about that, but he's struggling to let go of his previous commitment to such a, you know, such a huge message that he's pushing. You know, his, his messaging has taken on a new tone. I don't follow him out of a sense of worship. I just follow him because he's interesting. He's interesting as a character. He's clearly a confident guy, and I'm trying to figure out what's the, what's the story behind that. But I want him to just say, you know what? Don't hustle and grind. I'm, I'm, I fucked that up. That's not the best way. I found a better way. But he can't, he can't say it. You know, he can't say that. He's doing a new way now, and his messaging is kind of like you'll get here after you do the hustle and grind thing without saying actually the hustle and grind thing was an unnecessary sidetrack. I could have gotten here quicker had I known. So it's yeah, it's really – and that was a huge one for me, that surrender to let go of what didn't work. You know, um, that's what saved me in relationships in multiple occasions. At first, like, I let go of being a nice guy because that didn't work. And then after that, I had to let go of seduction because that wasn't getting me what I wanted. And to keep letting go to find a new thing. But letting go meant, like, when I was in the pickup, I used to tell all my friends about it and try to encourage them. And I'd brag about looking up with girls and stuff. And then afterwards go, yeah, no, I was wrong about all that, eh? Like, it was hard to do that because they were already giving me shit about it. Now I'm going to confirm that they were right all along and so on. But why hang on to it? I'd rather go through a bit of embarrassment and humility, you know, to find the right thing. You kind of nailed it. The thing I think that you and I see as coaches, it's most heartbreaking, is watching people cling desperately to something that makes them miserable. And you're like, dude... You've only got one life. Like, it's the seconds, the sands running through the fucking clock, you know, like, holy shit, let it go. It sucks. I don't care if it took you 20 years to figure out it sucks. Let it go now. Stop it. You know, but, yeah, they're scared of kind of, I don't know, admitting to it, perhaps, or I, I have a theory, one of the things they're most afraid of is that's the best thing they could find. And the search is only going to turn up worse, but I don't know, maybe it's just pride. I've never yet seen that be the case, but I remember that thought passing through my head on occasion. Yeah. Yeah, it's funny. Uh, I mean, I love, I love watching Pivot's Vanderchuk and, of course, uh, Mark Manson back in the day. 
really that shift in perspective can only happen when you stop and look at your past and do that do that deep reflection and look at the alternative paths you could have taken. Once you're at the top of that mountain, once you've accomplished, you can look down the side and kind of go, oh, that was a way easier path. I didn't even know that was there. You know, I totally missed it. I took that path because it had signposts and because I read a book and it told me to do it this way. And I think a lot of people live their lives that way, but most of us never reach the top. So we never get that clarity. We just keep grinding up the hardest possible path unhappily with the promise of some kind of, you know, future glory and joy. And it doesn't happen. But I really like, like, if you look at my life, if I was to like just try to describe it in one word, grind is a pretty appropriate word. I really believe, you know, that you work, you bust your ass. You just bust your ass whatever you want. You just keep going. But looking back, I sacrificed my 20s completely on the altar of the grind, you know? I don't even remember being in my 20s. That's pretty sad. That was not a fair trade, but I couldn't have seen that at the time. Those kinds of reflections, I hope that we can find a way to take kind of our experiences and the awareness and the kind of wisdom that we're accumulating in our own lives and codify that in a way that someone else can kind of shatter their, the myths that they're holding onto tightly enough that they can actually get a clear look at where they're at and whether it's getting them where they really want to go. So I think, I mean, <laughs> like I said before, looking out the window at the people just frustrated and stressed trying to get to work. Why? Why? Do something else where you can stay home. Like me, you know, like you. You know, life's meant to be enjoyed. If you're not enjoying it, you're failing. It doesn't matter what's in your bank account. You're failing. You know, own up to it and start new. Yeah, it's, uh, yeah, like I said, it's kind of heartbreaking to witness. You know, one of the things that I hope you and I are doing is filling in a gap that's really lacking in the self-development space, which is people who are committed to a previous system, breaking away from it and admitting that it wasn't the right way. The, the space we're in is filled with people who are diehard for the one way that they first signed up with and they just won't let it go. Um even though they themselves are seeing a lot of counter evidence build up and discrepancies and um, you know, uh, outliers on the graph to say maybe this isn't the fucking way, you know, nothing worse than somebody who preaches the way they live and they don't even enjoy it themselves. You know, I mean, that's the tragedy of humankind. You know, one of the things looking at parenting a lot lately, I've been looking at um, RIE, respectful something something um but it's all about this kind of very respectful relationship with a baby from the day it's born and letting it figure things out for itself is a huge element that you let it play by itself you don't try and entertain it all the time you always include it in everything that you're doing and decision making give it choices rather than forcing it and so on and one of the key ones that's sort of a bit more advanced is once they get into the education space is you let them choose. You know, your kid says, I want to be an astronaut. You go, okay, well, let's start looking at some mathematics. And you actually take it seriously. Um, and I think the rest of us have been really let down 
uh, and we have to recover from not having that. We were forced, we were force fed beliefs, education, culture. We didn't have a choice, and by the time we did have a choice, we're already too fucked. We're already too much in the system. And you can see it now, like, I think the picture that perfectly describes it is morning traffic. There is not a person in any of those cars who wouldn't rather be somewhere else. And you're like, millions of them, billions around the world, just sitting in traffic, and they don't want to be there. And the the thing that none of them seem to realize is they don't have to be there, most of them. So why are they there? You know, and, and that's that's a hard thing to wrap your head around. We've seen it in Brojo sometimes. You bring up these sort of controversial ideas. People are like, no, I can never do that. That's not possible for me because my special situation and I'm this like freak of nature that's not capable of that. And you're like, I know you think that, but I also know you're really fucking wrong. Like, I'm not special in creating a life like this. I'm not particularly gifted or talented in a way that separates me from the herd. I'm actually just a normal guy who, thankfully, certain ideas and people intervened with me at the right age to steer me off the track that everyone else has put on. And then I really hope you and I can sort of, like, come back from doing things the way that everyone does them and go, no, no, turn back. Don't do things this way. There's another way. It's way better than this. This way sucks. Yeah, I really like that. I think I think we're on the right path, which is that to the best of our abilities, we're just trying to live it. That's the only way we can learn is actually embracing the fact that life's uncertain and embracing the fact that you know you shouldn't chasing dreams isn't really going to bring happiness. It's fantasy. It's fancy like all of the other fantasies that have failed us. And that what you have now, whatever, however limited it is, however scarce it is, is real. It's the thing that you've got. You can really invest your time and energy and attention and joy in. It's those little things. Those moments with your kids, hanging out, having a coffee with friends. That's the important part of your day. And as long as we can embrace that, live that and enjoy that, I think it'll come out. In everything that we teach and everything that we, we create. I really love that. It's such a happier place to be than like, how do I get to that mountain? You know, no, just enjoy the freaking valley you're in today. It's beautiful, you know. Yeah, I had to make a big decision this week actually around publishing my next book. Was do I like hire a publisher and go hard out, or do I just do it on my own? And I was talking to the publisher about it. And he was talking about the marketing funnels and everything that would be set up and minimum book sales to achieve this, that, and the other. I just feel this pressure. I was like, you know what? Selling a lot of books isn't worth this. I don't want to not enjoy publishing again. I want to enjoy it. I'd rather enjoy 10 people buying my book than be stressed to fuck about 1,000 people buying it. You know, because otherwise, what's the point? So I can become a big guy? like, And what? It's the same problem with more zeros. It's just more stress and more responsibility and more people fucking hammering my email. I don't need that. So, you know, I made the decision. I'm like, if I actually wanted to enjoy my life, what would the choice be? And the decision was crystal clear. Casually do it at my own pace. So be it if it doesn't have a big bang. I'm not out here to, like, 
go down in history as the guy who wrote the next meditations or whatever. I just want to give my book to some of the people who I know will enjoy it. I can think of like a dozen off the top of my head who are going to enjoy it. That's enough. Fuck it. I'll write it for them. It will be on Amazon if anybody else wants to find it or comes across it. Good for them. I'll probably give it away for free half the time. That feels like enjoying my life. That feels like how I want to end my life as well. It's, it feels like going north to get north kind of thing. So, But it's hard. Because it's urging me, like, no, be a big superstar, still there. But I just have to be like, you hush now. You're wrong. Shush. <laughs> You're wrong. <laughs> I called you out. Full of shit. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, and I think we all have that part of our brain. And, and what's fascinating about that is, for the most part, I don't think ancient man had that voice. I think that's quite a strongly socialized voice. You know, we, we've, we've created a you know, hero worship cult kind of kind of mentality so deeply that we feel that you're either Brad Pitt or you're nobody. It's a very binary choice, right? And most people I know panic about that. They're like they have to be the top of the thing. Why? Gonna enjoy that more? Really? You know? What's the cost to get there exactly? Yeah. So time will tell. But I think this is an area of work that um we should go all in on. Well, that's that's what I like about what we do. Like, that's something I guess I really want to get across to anyone who listens to us is we really are trialing the stuff that we talk about, putting it to practice. And if it doesn't work, we say so, even if we previously promoted it. You know, there's stuff I used to promote that now I'm like, nah, I was actually wrong about that. But through the investigation, that, that turned out to be a false lead. So, sorry. And, and, I'm really, really cautious these days of whatever I put out there. I'm like, am I practicing that? Is this hypocrisy? Do I live this? Because if not, shut up or at least admit that it's just an idea and not actually practice. Um, and I'm pretty secure in the idea that I'm like what I'm telling people I believe is right or whatever. I'm putting it to work. You know, if I give someone advice on how to have a confrontation, it's based very strongly on the confrontation that I had with someone yesterday. It's not a fictional thing that I made up. You know? It's really important that we keep doing that because yeah. it does mean that we're going to keep updating the ideas and keep saying, look, our past stuff is less, uh, we're less into it than our current stuff. But I think that's what should happen with somebody who's growing. Someone's saying, like, I've been using this method for 15 years. I'm like, well, that probably sucks then. You know, <laughs> like it should be at least be have a, like a rewrite or something like 15 years that that's... I, I make that a regular practice now like i think of all of my blog articles as living documents just like wikipedia it's like oh i gotta go rewrite that one on dealing with life catastrophes now you know learn some new shit time to, time to update that um all of my articles get revisited Partly it's just because my writing sucked and it has improved dramatically. Part of it is because there is a lot more to say now. And there's stuff that was just flat out wrong, you know, misunderstood uh, or miscommunicated, wasn't clear enough. So I find that process just as valuable as writing a brand new article. Yeah, it's quite valuable. But um, yeah, that process, our own evolution. It's funny because we've been around, what, just about seven years now, Lord Joe has close and so in seven years we've kind of come full circle on quite a few topics we go back and we visit them and go, ah, my perspective is different now 
you know, learned a lot of stuff through coaching and through my own personal experiences and testing it. But I also noticed just like this book for you took quite a bit longer to get to get out. You didn't rush it. For me, it's the same. When I write an article, I'll take months because I'm a guinea pig, like R and D this summer stuff. I want to make certain that I understand exactly what I'm recommending here, what the pros and cons are before I put it out there as an idea. Because if it's not really battle tested, it's incomplete at best. And it could be flat out wrong. You know, I could have missed some critical step that, that needed to be, you know, specifically now. So, so yeah, coming back to the, the discussion earlier, I think, you know, our own lives, our own experiences are the best, you know, laboratory for everything that we're writing and learning and teaching. That's the most enjoyable way to do it too. It becomes very personal. Yeah, I remember reading philosopher Kant, Manuel Kant. He he never went like within fifty miles of his home his entire life. I was like, how can you be a philosopher without getting a range of experiences? It's like I'm sure you had some good ideas, but I can't trust them entirely. If you just sat at home going, I'm pretty and he had this rigid routine. It was so rigid, it was a groundhog day. This just the, he ate the exact same thing at the same time, went to the same places at the same time. He, he was just like, like he was probably pretty strongly on the spectrum kind of thing. Um, and I was like, he has all these great ideas, but like, I need somebody who's gone and gotten into some shit and had to like put those. It's not theory, you know. I, I like applied psychology. I like it. Like, you had to deal with some real shit. So I think it's important you and I just keep striving to do that. It's been interesting with writing my books. You know, the the one about honesty has been really, as I went through a period of honing, what the fuck is honesty, getting into like the detail of like real truthfulness. The next book, which I've already started writing, uh, is going to be a fiction. and the, uh, But it's based on, it's called Only Human, and it's based on coming to terms with just being a normal human, which is really what I'm going through at the moment. Letting go of like my delusions of grandeur and, and getting back to like, can I be happy just being a basic primate? Like, can I be happy not being special? And so the book's kind of like a fiction of a journey of someone trying to become okay with just being a normal human and be okay with other people doing it as well. Um, so it's it's funny because if I read my first book, like Legendary Life, I'm like, yeah, I'm not going to be promoting this too heavily anymore. <laughs> you know, like it's not bad, but it's not how I actually live now. So I wouldn't, I couldn't recommend it. But it was how I lived at the time I wrote it. You know, it was the best idea I had at the time, but now it's not. Yeah, it's it's interesting too. You could almost describe each of our lives as phases where we went through archetypes. The rock star, you know, the businessman, the entrepreneur, the dad, right? Very different perspective, very different worldview on, on everything, what we want, what we enjoy, what we're aiming for, what matters to us, all fundamentally. Even our core values probably shift a bit within that frame. It's almost like time boxing our life in these big eons of you know, chapter three. Here's, here we go. It's exciting though, you know? When we look back someday, it's going to be quite a quite an adventure to reread, you know, that story we've written. Well, I do find a couple of things. One is there are some things I'm finding now that have some sort of permanence to them, my core values, my interpretation of them, and my ability to live by them. 
is changing, but the values themselves, I feel like these are the values I had when I was six. And there's something quite cool about that. Like, I think there are some like permanent or objective truths that we're trying to discover. And I'm also finding that the the shift in my perspective is getting less dramatic over time. I feel like I'm really filtering down to the good stuff now. Whereas before I was kind of like filtering out big bad things. Like, okay, completely change that. Oh, I completely change that. Now it's changed that a little bit, change that a tiny bit. It's like I'm sort of like true north. I'm really honing in on it now. Um, so that's exciting because this has been tested to death. We go through these different phases or archetypes and you get like the big lessons out of that whole phase and you carry it through to the next one and apply it and you're kind of stacking up. I guess kind of like learned wisdom or something, um, which is why you know anybody's just stuck in one phase since they were nineteen. Like, dude, there's that you've you've maxed that out. You know, there's nothing more for you there. You have to shift it up somehow. But yeah, it's interesting. All right, let's keep working. Let's see how let's wrap up for today. But uh, we'll talk offline. I would like to go deeper on the attachment styles discussion. But probably with some visuals, we can really hone in on some of the impacts. One of the things that we talked about briefly last time that I want to continue is the discussion of how modern dating, things like Tinder, are having such a big impact on the way we relate and on the level of commitment and attachment we form in relationships. And I think, I think probably on its propensity to create avoided behaviors as well. Mm-hmm. You know? Um, there is a lot to talk about. I think a lot of our guys have been struggling with the dating and relationships world. I think there's there's some pretty whack things going on right now in, in culture and in society that are contributing to that. So I'd like to to help help with that as much as I can. So let's let's focus in on that for our next session. Sounds good. Yep, we have to chat about that later. Awesome, man. Good to see you again. Have a great week. You too, Brian. Chat again. We'll catch up soon.